Welcome to the Pharma Lab Show. The following roundtable discussion on polymorphism of active pharmaceutical solid forms was recorded at the Rogaku Pharmalytical Summit. The full recording is just over one hour long and has been split into two podcasts. You are currently listening to the second episode. You're listening to the Pharma Lab Show, the podcast that delivers insights on what goes on behind the scenes to bring life-changing pharmaceuticals to the market. In this show, we hear from the people driving the technology, analysis, and innovation needed to ensure today's pharmaceuticals are safe, reliable, and effective. Let's dive in. So to wrap up the roundtable discussion today, I would like to ask the members to express their opinion on future perspectives this time. But projecting a few years down the road, do you see the role of polymorphism as an evolving one, or are there some revolutionary breakthroughs on the horizon? I'd like to start off with, with Steve for this, and we'll go around the table. Yeah, I think it might be evolutionary, not revolutionary. Um, I think there, the, certainly the small, working with small amounts of material, I think single crystal and indexing, have a lot of potential, and I think synchrotron. But I think it could be a combination of of X-ray methods are going to advance over the next few years and give us a lot more capability to do what Anne said, to figure out what's happening in these screens and how many forms there are and the most stable forms. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Suri? Uh, So I'm going to make two assumptions, that the oral route will continue to be the most popular route and that uh, more than 50% of the drugs under Mm -hmm. development belong to BCS class 2. So since the solubility is the limiting factor, controlling the physical form provides an avenue to modulate the solubility. So from this context, the physical form and specifically the polymorphic form will continue to be important. I think that the analytical techniques will be getting better and better, and therefore the limit of detection and limit of uh, quantification will get lower. The last point is, as the drug candidates uh, increasingly have undesirable physicochemical properties, we'll be relying more and more on excipients to make the formulation effective. And so the functionality of the excipients take on an important role. And so in addition to drug polymorphism, issues of excipient physical form are going to become more important from the context of their functionality. Thank you. And? Yeah, I I guess I see it as evolutionary because I think polymorphs and forms, we're discovering so many new things in pharmaceutics. You know, we went from amorphous to amorphous dispersions to now coamorphous. And we keep adding different things. We go from binary to ternary systems. We're in quaternary systems. So I think I see it evolving as we get more creative and, you know, maybe necessity is the mother of invention. But so I think we're never going to end with the number of different kinds of forms that we're eventually going to find. From a revolutionary point of view, I would love to see more computational ways to at least get a handle on things, you know, even if, you know, so I can try and either reproduce it in the lab or compare it to what I've already got. To me, I would love to see that because I think in so many ways it would make our lives easier to understand the crystallization landscape that we may be able to either attain or that we've already there and we don't even know it. So I kind of see it as bubble. Thank you. And Ken? Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. So, yeah, following up on what Ann said, I think there are a couple of things that it could be evolutionary, revolution. I'm not really 
not really sure. I'm, I'm a tactician. But uh, the use of big data for structure solutions is really uh, an underdeveloped area. I mean, they've done a fair amount at Cambridge, but that's not their, their primary function. Uh, that, that'll get you not only estimates for new forms, but also estimates for variations in forms, because part of the problem is, is that you never have a, a, an ideal crystal, even, uh, even singly, much less in a population. So I think that's a big gap that's going to be filled in, the, in building it into the computational realm. That's where the biggest advances for Dussault systems and others have come from, is taking the computational methods and marrying them to the big data and at the risk of sounding uh, trendy, uh, AI uh, approaches to actually solving the structures. The one thing that would help that a lot is to really facilitate the sort of lab instrument levels that could approach synchrotron you know, resolution. I mean, I think if if we could do our intensity, if we could do that, I mean, there's the, the, the benchtop synchrotrons and things, but I think that's a big area. And that's under development several places. I think, Simon, you can speak to that more than I, of course. The final thing I wanted to, to say is that the studies that we're talking about are only going to become more more important to Surrey's point. Uh, they're only going to become more important because not only are the generics going down the road of, of developing dosage forms without having the prior knowledge, hence the term we've been using, new prior knowledge, to generate the kind of information they need, but now with repurposing, uh, this is even this is even more critical. Uh, without this, you know, we're in big uh, in big trouble. We'll have more and more recalls, more, more levothyroxines and warfarins, et cetera. And, and the last part, I would link that to computational as well, but is the, the sort of the computational PK, and that is for reformulation. More recent, most recently, reformulation for geriatrics has become really problematic. So people are having all sorts of problems with these formulations. Monsoor has probably heard about it from the agency, but, and they can't, the, the things that work when it was a simple tablet just don't work when you put it into a different dosage form. I sort of see those as, as the areas that I would uh, stake some money on. Yeah, thanks, Ken. And Al? Yeah, I think that um, computational work, um, AI, machine learning, again, whatever code word you want to use that's trendy, uh, I, I see those changes now, um, and uh, they're going to have some big IP implications. Uh, recently, there was a, there's a case that's been working its way through the court system called uh, Davos. It has nothing to do with crystalline forms, but it has to do with the concept of what happens when an AI comes up with an invention and there's no human invention. In fact, there's some perhaps some uh, already analogies with respect to robotic screening, where you know uh, someone has you know, programmed the robot, but it's the robot that's doing uh, that's doing the screening if it's fully automated. So there's some challenges I think that are coming down the pike. Uh, with respect to not only who's an inventor on new forms, depending on how it's done, but also what happens when you reach the stage where we can say, well, hey, you know, we can we can actually tell you in advance what the stable form looks like. How does that affect the patentability of these forms? And um, uh, so I think there's some challenges coming up. And I, I think, you know, clever people are going to come up with some solutions, but it's going to be an interesting road uh, down, the, down the line. Yeah, thanks, Ayal. I agree. Interesting times. Mm-hmm. So, Mansoor? One of the things that I'm thinking is the disease management. You know, there are certain diseases. For example, you have brain tumors or you have, you know, some some very critical situation. What role does this polymorphism 
Uh, if we, for example, if you go to NIH, look at some study section, people talk nano and nano and nano, there's a lot of room for it, right? So, uh, because it's really going into areas of tumors that in other ways it's not able to go. So do we have some polymers that can go? Or can we show our utility in some important disease? Then I think this, this polymorphism will really, really take off. And it, there's, there's a good chance that nano when you're doing it you know some of the forms might be changing and people may not even be characterizing it that well with respect to some 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 polymorphic changes in nano they may not so they are mostly focused on size and at the most the charge of that one right a lot of times so but if we really want to target certain diseases or show some value in it i think it'll really take off otherwise if you just increase the solubility or decrease by using some forms, by modifying, or which are we know that thermodynamically unstable, but now people are stabilizing with excipient and processes. But if it really has to shift the gears between what uh, firms have been doing and what they want to do, they need to find some niche value in certain critical condition. Now, all these, you know, there are a lot of efforts in COVID these days. I'm just thinking, right? So what is polymorphism? What can polymorphism do to, to formulate it? There are no medications, no vaccines for children yet, right? So can something be done like that or something to focus on the end user and how a polymorphism or areas related to that can be beneficial? The second thing, the important use these days, you know, they're trying to have online monitoring of things. For example, you want to look at some content or you want to look at some size. You know, they're trying to do some fingerprinting with respect to various composition of excipients through real-time monitoring, right? So X-ray diffraction and techniques like that may not be amenable to that. So I don't know in future if there will be a way to do that. I thought it might already be done, but I'm not aware of, but the real-time monitoring could be useful. The third thing, the chemometrics, the approach, I think Ratsuri and his lab and some of our lab folks have also done and uh, where you're trying to uh, look at the effect of a single ingredient in a, in a component mixture and how a group of peaks going up and down rather than one peak going up and down or two peaks going up and down, right? So chemometrics might might resolve this, these drug peaks from other peaks, right? So there seems to be a lot of uh, a need for that one. Uh, one more, uh, the another thing that I saw was, uh, which is very interesting, was the solid dispersions. Uh, they were immediate release. A lot of time you're trying to enhance the, you know, uh, solubility and bioavailability, but very effective use of uh, this same technology for control release products. So, so now they have. They're just by modifying the process or modifying the excipient now, they have products that are actually approved as control release. They have very creatively used technology to make control release. So now you have extended release solid dispersion. And, uh, and there could be other variations there in it, component, I think Anne mentioned binary, ternary, and things like that. So you might be having one drug, two drugs, three drugs like that. So these are... These are some opportunities, but eventually how it benefits the patient and what we can do as, as physical scientists that others are unable to do, that will be the future, uh, bright future. I mean, future is always there, but that will be a bright future for us, for polymorphism. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you all. Uh, we're sort of running out of time, but there's, been, there's so many good ideas expressed there. Um, I'd like to open up uh, the table again. 
if you've got quick comments, like one minute or so, we can probably take a couple of comments if anyone would like to dive in. Uh, if, if I could just real briefly, I think USP has to be helped to come along in terms of their standards for physical uh, properties. I think that's a that's a big uh, big gap right now. Yeah. I think one of the challenge, main challenges, if you make a product, but I make another product, my polymorph is slightly different, but I am showing my dissolution is same because I've selected a method that's non-discriminatory or whatever. I'm showing a method that is showing my product is same as yours, and I'm doing bioavailability that's same as yours. Then you spend so much on a certain polymorph, but I'm getting my product approved and that's on the market. And a lot of generic companies are going very fast and just bringing their products on the market. If that's not always good and right, that's why we have recalls and other problems later on, but they are getting their products approved. Yeah, real briefly to, to answer, Karen, on that question. In the United States, uh, a generic company can go on the market with a different polymorph if they can show it's bioequivalent. Yeah. So one of the strategies that innovators have is when they go after polymorphs and other crystalline forms to patent the forms, not just the ones that they're carrying forward, but also defensively ones that they aren't carrying forward, but are still commercially viable. It's hard to convince small companies of that though. I have to tell you. Yeah. They really don't want to patent all of those forms. And I tell them that generic companies can get very, very creative. They'll go from solid oral dosage forms to patches to very, very different formulations that can take an entirely different type of crystalline form or amorphous form. And my clients are just like, no, we're going to go with oral dosage form. And I'm like, okay. So I totally agree with your point. Trying to get some of these smaller companies, and as you said, some of these patent lawyers who may not know the area, it's hard to convince them sometimes. And then, then they have a patent end, and somebody they just infringe so easily on that one, and citing, you know, this is different. So, so that's why it's very important to protect that intellectual thing, and which uh, a lot of small firms don't do that very well. And later on, their patents can, you know, people are <laughs> easily copying that. Well, that's one thing you can learn the hard way. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and sometimes it, it, that's the only way to learn. And sometimes um, when they do their first due diligence, when they're in, in make, looking for a partner and the partner starts asking these questions, well, how is someone going to, because that's a typical due diligence question, how is your solid form patent going to protect against design arounds? And if there's not a good answer for that, then sometimes they, they come back and, and go to the lab and, and find those forms <laughs> and patent them. One, one thing that Mansoor mentioned also there are some cases where nanoparticles are crystalline or amorphous, and that um, paclitaxel especially, and uh, the amorphous nanoparticles are claimed anyway to be uh, more active and um, a better cure, 30% better clinical results, for example, for, um, for a Braxane. And that brings one of the areas I didn't mention, but it's really important, I think it's going to emerge. You know, we don't know the structure of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. We know they're solid lipid nanoparticles. We know they use four different lipids, and they're solid. They're very small. They're suspended, as I understand it. But we don't know the structure. We need to figure out how to get the structure of 
nanoparticles more, much more. And this may be where I think it was Ken was mentioning benchtop synchrotrons or maybe chromium X-ray, uh, short wavelength X-ray uh, tubes to get PDF patterns is certainly going to be one of the ways. But we need to be able to figure those out, I think. And, and Steve, that's one of the very nascent areas, really, because their chemistry, I don't think they spent time at all on chemistry. That's why you have a product that you need to store a minus 80. They haven't formulated. Exactly. So yeah. it just saves. It's it. amazing. We're curing, we're curing COVID, and we don't know the structure of what we're using. We don't know the structure. We don't know how to stabilize it. Keep it at minus eight. It's uh, objectionable to an X-ray person. Very objectionable. Well, a year ago, none of this existed. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, it didn't maybe for the boosters, we'll know a year more. ago. Well, but not only that. I mean, they're, they're under emergency use authorization. So, Mansur, when they file their full application, presumably they're going to have to produce some data, are they not? No, no, but yeah, but, but it I can be say. pretty empirical. Well, go ahead, Mansur. Yeah. And I was going to say that I must say that uh, considering the time, they have done a great job. There's a great product now. Yeah, and if we were if we were waiting for all their complete characterization. We wouldn't have had all those vaccines. So, well, they, it looks like they will apply for approval uh, early. Um, I, I, it's interesting because I don't know how they're going to complete their clinical trial, and maybe they don't have to. They they can use pharmacovigilance data from the general population. But mm-hmm. I've read in the newspapers that they're going to be going for approval relatively soon. So I think some of that information is going to have to come out in that approval dossier. Well, thank you. All. We we definitely overrun our time schedule here, but it was a really great <laughs> conversation. So thank you. Again, I'd like to thank you know, the Roundtable members and all the audience for attending this event. And just to mention again, there are links to the members' uh, LinkedIn pages in the show notes. So if you'd like to discuss in more detail the personal opinions that have been expressed today, then please feel free to reach out to the individual members. I'd like to say have a good day, everyone, and of course, a good health. Thank you for listening to the Pharma Lab Show, and we'll see you at the next episode. Pharmaceuticals have the power to change the world for the better. But before they can ever do that, they need to be proven safe and trustworthy. Here at Urgaku, we strive to make this a reality as the leading global scientific analytical instrumentation company, specializing in X-ray and thermal analysis and Raman spectroscopy. To learn more about how we do that, visit us at pharma.rigaku.com. You've been listening to the Pharma Lab Show. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.